I had a chief resident, a woman who was a phenomenal orthopedic surgeon. And we saw this child who had a dislocated neck, who was quadriplegic. And the mother that day said, will my son walk again? It was clear the son was not going to walk again. And my chief resident said, your son will not walk again. And when I say the family was devastated and they, I, they were unconsolable, I couldn't talk to them for the first five or six days. It was difficult to help educate the parents about, and they developed this resentment towards this particular doctor. And they wrote letters about this doctor. And the doctor did what she thought was right. They really went after the doctor. And it taught me a lesson. And, and again, we're wrong. So I just want to say doctors are wrong. So as I told you before, I have patients come in who are paralyzed, but we've intervened early and I've seen miracles. I call it miracles because I've seen patients paralyzed that have walked out of rehab. And so now I don't say anything anymore. So that's how I communicate. So when mom says to me, will my son walk again? I say, you know something? I don't know the answer to that, but I hope so because time will tell. What happens is you think, you see things change over a few days, a week, six weeks. And then all of a sudden, sometimes you see them moving their legs again. And sometimes they do walk, but you don't know. So I never prognosticate. And if it's unfortunate, they go on where they're not moving their legs. The family, by that time, starts to understand what's going on. They, the environment, they read, they get advice. They say, well, this may happen. And then they, they Google it and they find out, well, there's a, a 6% chance that he's going to walk again. And then then the conversation becomes, well, it's pretty clear to me that this is probably not going to change. And I said, well, you never know. Give it some more time. But they, they start to learn it and they accept it much better. So I tell my fellows, don't be the harbinger of tragic news because you could be wrong. And hope helps people recover. And hope and that sort of belief that positivity can help you heal and improve. I really believe in that. Prayer, positivity intrinsic motivation to get people to do better. I, I really stand behind that. Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. Welcome to Medical Moments, where I, Paris Lovett, talk with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Alex Vaccaro. He is an orthopedic surgeon and spine surgeon at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. He is also the chair of orthopedic surgery at Jefferson and the president of Rothman Orthopedics, one of the country's top-tier orthopedic groups. Dr. Vaccaro, welcome to Speaking on Medical Moments. Thank you, Paris. I'm happy to be here. Can you walk me through an example that you remember of someone who had a fresh spinal cord injury asking, you know, and, and, and the discussion that they had with you directly, the kind of words they used? This has just happened during the COVID crisis. A uh, friend of mine, daughter, became paralyzed in a car accident. And I took that woman to the operating room and fractured dislocation and we reduced the dislocation um there was 
disruption of the membrane, the dura fixed it, avulsed nerve roots from the spinal cord. And the first thing my friend said to me is, will my daughter walk again? And I said, we got to it early, time will tell. That's been two to three weeks. And she got full strength in her arms, which is great, but she hasn't gotten function in her legs. And again, I said to him, I said, listen, let's give it time. You never know. We got to it early. We perfused the spinal cord. There's only three things we can do in spinal trauma. Stop the motion. That's stabilized. Take pressure off. Increase blood pressure. Perfuse the spinal cord. All the other things we do, we haven't proven they work. Steroids, Sygen, Willisol, all the different types of anti-row agents, all the things we do now, um, stem cells. It hasn't moved the needle, unfortunately, yet. Three things. Stop the motion, take the pressure off, increase blood pressure. And that's when we see, see great things happen. So that's, I'm having that, that's, I just had this conversation. I just had, and, and I look at the- What was she like when she came in? She was in a coma. I didn't have my first conversation with her until a post-operative visit when she came back from McGee rehab. And I spoke to her for the first time in three weeks. Most of the people I operate on are not having a conversation with me. So I, I didn't even know, I don't, now I know her. I didn't know her before. I just operated on her. And it was during the COVID crisis, so. What was your friend like when your friend first spoke with you? Um, my friend is super religious, so super religious. So demure, super nice, uh, didn't break down emotionally. The type of person that accepts whatever God hands them. So it's a very religious, very religious uh, family. And uh, and it's getting them through it. I mean, and, and, and let me tell you, having, having a crutch such as religion or something you believe in, um, they're doing great. Mom and dad are doing great. And I tell people all the time with paralysis, I mean, there's different levels of paralysis. I mean, if you lose your arms and legs, it's very difficult. Those that lose their legs, you and I have function our legs. We say, well, that's a horrible thing. But they, after a while, they do great. People who are paraplegic, it's a horrible thing, but they do great. And you go through this depression after spinal cord injury. And a lot of my patients have said, you know, I, I thought about taking my life. They just said it to me. So, you, know, I, you know, I used to be a burly 50-year-old man. I supply I provided for my family. Now I'm useless. I'm going to take my life. And I go, listen, I guarantee in a year from now, you'll forget you don't have legs. And they come back and they say, doc, I do anything I want to do. I'm in, I'm in my wheelchair. I'm flying around. I got a routine. Uh, and it's not as devastating as you think, even though it is devastating. People are okay um, if they have their arms. Now, if you don't have your arms, it's much more difficult. But like anything in life, you learn to acclimate. And you're always amazed at the strength of people, people that can't even move their arms at all, that can only move their neck, have to communicate through a straw. Some of the happiest people I've ever met. How do people deal with loss of bowel or bladder control and with loss of sexual function? So again, that sounds horrible, but um, we can retrain a neurogenic bladder. We can retrain neurogenic bowels. So you can get on a program where any type of stimulation will allow for bowel movement once you get on the appropriate types of stool softeners and stuff like that. Uh, urogenic bladder, you can do in and out cath and stuff like that. So you can do that. You can wear um, a Texas catheter 
I mean, there's all different ways. You could have a permanent injury foley. A lot of my patients, it's interesting, which is a, a fad now, will do a colostomy. So they don't have to have anyone help them and they can change their colostomy back. So that's how they deal with that. And then there's all sorts of procedures they can do for sexual dysfunction. You can, in a male, you can have some a prosthesis placed. You can have some sort of stimulator. So it's a science in and of itself. The urologists have created a science. So, you know, thank God. And, and the future in spinal cord injury, which is interesting, you, you've seen, you've seen the, uh, the superheroes, Iron Man with the helmet, all the different, they're developing exoskeletons that are smaller and smaller and smaller that you can put on after paralysis that you can walk. With, with electrical stimulations, thoughts, you can power it. And then if you have your function of your arms, your arms become, and you could walk. I mean, they have pictures of people like walking. They look normal. They're walking with an exoskeleton on. And then now you have, now you have motion and locomotion, which is great. So as a beginning point, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your early life, what you were like as a kid, how you grew up. Yeah, so I, I grew up in a middle-class family in northern New Jersey, and uh, I was one of six children. And it was a large Catholic family. Uh, went to church every Sunday. My dad worked for IBM, and you know what IBMers are like, you know, conservative, gray suit, white tie, never said anything inappropriate. I, can, I, I think back on my father. He died at the age of 84. And did my father ever say anything that embarrassed me or I would roll my eyes like you do with your friends? Never. My mom was strung out being a mother of six kids that were nine months apart on average. So you could just imagine that. And so it was a chaotic household. Uh, we always thought we were poor, but we, we weren't. We were just six kids, nine months apart. Uh, everyone went on to college. And I had this desire since I was young to be a doctor. And I became, I, I, became, I developed that interest at the age of eight. And I remember that clearly because I liked my family physician Dr. Ferraro, who's still alive, he's 95. And the funny thing is, we just operated on him at the Rothman Institute. Dr. Ferrara gave his permission for Dr. Vaccaro to mention that he had his surgery with Rothman. So I had so much respect for him and I played sports. So I played football and I was, a, I was really into football and he was the team physician for my high school. And I loved the fact that he was a team physician and I got involved in this, the understanding of orthopedic surgery at an early age. I, Fast forward to now, I've been the team spine surgeon for the Philadelphia Eagles uh, since 2004. So I spend my weekend standing on the football field, and it was all because of Dr. Ferrara and his involvement, um, just being around sports, being around the excitement, being around the adrenaline, and loving it, and also being exposed to complex issues related to sports, such as our ethical obligations to protect the athlete with the onus on that the patient wants to go back to play, i.e. the athlete, the, the uh, agent wants the player to go back to play and so forth like that. And that's been sort of a, and I never felt pressure in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, you read in the newspaper all the time, doctors are, are being pushed to get players back to play. That's not the case with the Philadelphia Eagles, which is interesting. And I've really enjoyed that experience. So getting to orthopedics was just because I was sort of, I, I considered myself an athlete when I was younger. My team physician doctor was someone I, I idolized. And I, I went to Boston College. I went to Georgetown Medical School. And then I ended up where I am today. I went to Thomas Jefferson University after doing an internship at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles in general surgery. 
and I never left. So in 1988, I came to Jefferson. The number one spine fellowship in the country was University of California, San Diego and Steve Garfin. And I said, I wanted to be a spine surgeon because I worked with a gentleman, Jerry Kotler at Thomas Jefferson. You may not have met him. He passed away at the age of 72. And he was the guy in his 70s that when I was on call as a resident, I would call him on the 4th of July weekend and he'd come in the hospital at two o'clock in the morning in his 70s, you know, whatever. He was an elderly man at the time. And he was a workaholic dedicated to his patients. And at that point, I said, okay, listen, I love that man and I love what he's doing for patients. And Thomas Jefferson is a spinal cord injury referral center. I want to be a spine surgeon. So that's how I got into the whole thing. And then I came back as an assistant professor, and it's been great. We, we have an unusually good relationship with the Department of Neurosurgery here. So we're, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, so I went out and be, developed a professorship. I'm a professor now in neurosurgery. We allow the, the neurosurgeons in spine surgery to develop a professorship in orthopedics. are listening to Medical Murmurs. So what sport did you play as a kid? So I played football. I was a left-handed thrower in baseball, and I was a left-handed quarterback, and I was a middle linebacker, and I was a lineman, and I loved it. I loved it up until the fourth game of my senior year when I was playing middle linebacker, and my partner, we, we, we had a 4-4 defense, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, the two middle linebackers and two outside linebackers. And my partner went to tackle somebody and spun around and hit the side of my knee, causing what they call valgus injury to my knee. So I ruptured my ACL on my right knee. I ruptured my MCL like you did. And I went to have surgery. Now this is 1979. So 19, so today if I fix your ACL, I use you know part of your patella, the tendon. We do it minimally invasively. You're up in a brace, you're moving. And just for, for everyone back home, ACL stands for anterior cruciate ligament. And these cruciate ligaments, they basically hold your knee together. So you can go upstairs and downstairs without the top of your leg sliding off the bottom of your leg. Right. And, and they don't heal very well non-operatively. So I went to, my mother was so afraid. I lived in New Jersey. She said, we're not going to a New Jersey doctor. We have to go to the big city. We lived in Bergen County, New Jersey, northern New Jersey. So we go to Columbia. And we have the chairman of the department operate. And he was an older man. He looked like he was in his 70s. So that was uh, that was an issue. And he used a procedure that today we know doesn't work. So he took like a ligament, semimembranosis, semitendinosis, which is part of the hamstring complex. And he sort of wrapped it around the knee and it doesn't work. And then I'm in a cast for six weeks. I'm not going to school. And then I tried to play baseball at Boston College. And I remember running the base. And as I would turn to the left to go from second to third base, my knee would continue to go out to right field. And my knee would swell up. And I said, okay, I, I can't run anymore. And they used my knee to teach the orthopedic residents during my training to what an unstable knee was. There's something called the Lachman test that you're familiar with, where you just you grab the tibia and you go back and forth. And, uh, and my knee was just so unstable. So I eventually had it fixed again by my partner, Michael Sicotti. And then over time, I um I continue to play football. So up until this day, this is going to make you laugh. And my fellows here, and he plays football with me. We play this pickup football league every year, and it's 
it's a five Mississippi count, but it's full contact, but you can't tackle the quarterback. And I'm the quarterback. And I hurt, I ruptured my Achilles tendon playing that sport. Every year, and now I'm 58, the youngest guys are probably about 26. These kids like to hit when they're 26. And they especially like to hit 50-year-olds. And playing quarterback, and you're not allowed to hit the quarterback, I've had an ACL injury. That's I had it done again. I, I really ruptured it. I had an Achilles tendon rupture, and I had surgery for that. And when I was hopping around on my knee after my Achilles tendon, because you have to be non-weight-bearing, I, I, my knee used to swell. And now I have like end-stage arthritis in my right knee, so now I don't even jog. So I make this joke when I'm at Thomas Jefferson. If I have to walk across the street and I see a Mack truck coming, yeah, I'll get hit by the truck. It's a lot easier than trying to jog to get out of the road. That's how bad my knee is now. So I have end-stage arthritis, which brings me to my last topic is, are you going to let your kids play football when they get older? I was going to ask you this. Great, great. So great. So I have a son who is six foot four, 300 pounds, and he played football all the way through college at Amherst. So I said, yes. I had a second son who was a quarterback, played in high school, and then he got beaten out for his position. So I wasn't really thinking about it. Now, this is years ago. Now, my five-year-old son, now being around, and you and I know the literature about head injuries and you know, even playing soccer, head, I'm starting to think differently as a 58-year-old man. Do I want my, my son to hit his head every time? So I don't know what to do. My wife, my wife is okay with it, which is interesting. My wife is like, yeah, if they want to play football, it's okay. I, the team physician, for the Philadelphia Eagles, I'm like, yeah, maybe he should go on to play tennis or golf or something like that. You know, I'm just thinking, you know, why not? I'm not going to, so I don't know what I'm going to do now. He's too young and I love playing football. So he sees me playing football all the time because I love it. So, you know, I don't know what to do. So you don't have, you don't have an answer. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a typical doctor that learns as I get older and I become more conservative. And in that conservative position is like that in everything I do nowadays, like as a surgeon, which is a great um, entry into, you become much more conservative. Every time I go into an operating room, it was like, I know what I need to do to make you feel better. And I know I can do this and I can know I can do it safely. Now I only think about every single time I did this procedure, whatever went wrong, I lived with that patient for their entire life. You know, you operate on someone, they become a family member. If you have a complication with a patient, they move into your house. I mean, you, you have to make sure they're doing great. So now I see when I do anything, I see ahead to the next move in the operating room. What can possibly go wrong? What do I need to do to prevent that? And even if you do everything perfectly right, there's always a chance for an adverse event to occur. So now I'm getting older and I become much more conservative in how I approach things. And, and my stomach for risk is much less as you become older. I just don't want to deal with that risk anymore because I know there's a one to 2% chance that's going to happen. And if you're a spine surgeon like I am, the one to 2% risk is a bad outcome. And that's a bad outcome that you don't want to see. So these are the things that go through my mind. So I may, I may say to my son, um, maybe we won't do football. So can you actually talk me through a case that had a bad outcome and just relate a little bit about the patient, what it was like when they first came to you, what they were suffering from, and then what happened? and the impact on them, the impact on you. Okay, so um, the worst complication ever was a paralysis case. That's the worst complication ever. And it was a, a young man with, 
he was an achondroplastic dwarf. So just to let the audience know, um, dwarfism has certain congenital abnormalities in multiple parts of the body, but in the spine, they develop what we call a gibbous or kyphotic deformity. They t- tend to develop severe spinal stenosis where there's pressure on the spinal cord and they begin to develop paresis or paralysis of the low extremities. And their anatomy is different. It's not like a normal spine. We have a circular canal where the nerve goes through. They develop a different type of canal and it's a very complex surgery. And I had a young man, and I can't remember how old he was. He, he was young. He must have been in his 30s. And he was losing the ability to walk. So what happens is when you have severe pressure in your spinal cord, you lose bowel and bladder function, you lose the ability to walk. So he came into my office in a wheelchair and he was getting paralyzed. And I said, listen, we need to go to the operating room and we need to take the pressure off your spinal cord. And I went over all the risks and what's the risk of getting paralyzed? And I said, well, you're almost paralyzed now. You still can move your legs and you still have bowel and bladder function, but I'd say over 30%. And normally if I do a complex spine operation for scoliosis that's dangerous, it's less than 1%. It's 1%. So I, I remember with my fellow, I went to the operating with him. We intubated this gentleman. And then we put the electrodes, and it's, we use neurophysiological monitoring, where we use something called motor vote potentials, where we, we pulse electricity through the brain, and we have receivers distally in the ankles, and we have receivers on the hands. So we could see the electrical current to make sure we have viability of the spinal cord. And if it changes, we, we, you know, we, we do different things. So he's awake. We have him move everything. He's moving everything. We then administer anesthesia. And we then do the neurophysiological monitoring. Everything's okay. Then we turn him from his back onto his stomach on the operative table. And then we do the monitoring again. And they say, he's paralyzed. And I said, well, we haven't even started the surgery yet. He's paralyzed. I said, what do you mean he's paralyzed? They said, we don't have any function. So that little bit of motion, that little bit of motion of the spine paralyzed this gentleman, putting him in that position. And then, you know, then, then you know, we wake him up, we tell him what's going on. Then we say, he makes a decision. Well, listen, take the pressure off my spinal cord right away. We put him back to sleep again. We go ahead and we do the operation. And he never got any function back. So now you have a guy who came to me with the hope that his life would be different. And now he's not going to walk again for the rest of his life. And he was the nicest guy in the world. He knew that everyone did everything that they could. He knew this happened even before we operated on. But you're devastated. And what, what gets a surgeon, a nurse, a fellow through that is that so many surgeons before me have gone through it. So many spine surgeons have had this happen to them. So we had like these sort of self-help chat rooms where we talk. I mean, we didn't even have the internet back then. This is happened early. But I remember talking every time I saw someone with achondroplasia come into my office, I would always tell that story. It's say, doc. What are the chances of me getting paralyzed? And I, you know, you always, this is what surgeons do. Knock on wood, it's never happened to me. But in that particular spinal disorder, I would say, well, I had a patient that got paralyzed and I didn't even do anything. I just put him on a table. 50% of the patients are like, 
I'm out of here. I mean, and I'm like, that literally, I'm out of here. They're like, hey, I've just decided I'm going to let God take my ability to walk. And I said, I said, that may not be a bad choice in this particular pathology. So I still see patients like that. I still do surgeries like that. And I've been fortunate that I haven't had that happen again. It happened once. And I've been operating since 19 as, a, as an, a, an attending professor, system professor. I started in 1993. So I haven't had that happen again. But that was the most devastating thing that happened. So I was wondering if you could talk to me about a case where you felt you made a big difference in someone's life and paint a picture of who they were, you know, what it was like when you first met them. Maybe take me through the actual surgery itself, like the approach that you use, the stages of getting to where you needed to get, and then what it was like afterwards. So like everything, everything comes in twos. So there was a young woman who worked as a teacher. I won't mention her name because I have to be HIPAA compliant because I made that mistake earlier. And she's driving on Swoople and she gets into a car accident and she dislocates her neck. And if she, she lost, she was slowly losing function in her arms and legs, sitting in a car and she was getting paralyzed. And a Comcast maintenance person drove up, got out of the car, and she said, I think I'm paralyzed to the Comcast person. And he realized, or she realized, if she lifted her neck up because she dislocated her neck, it would open up the spinal canal. She'd get function. So this Comcast gentleman from Comcast held her neck up and extended her neck until a police officer and then an ambulance could get there. So this good Samaritan held this woman's neck. And I said, well, how long was that? 20 minutes. Then they got her. They brought her to Thomas Jefferson. The gentleman disappeared and no one knows his name to this day. So when she gets to see me, she's paralyzed and she doesn't have any function. So she eventually lost it because, you know, just positioning. So, so, so where, where was she paralyzed? At, in the cervical spine. And so, and so she had, she was complete below that. Yeah. So she was complete. Now, I always tell this to all my residents and fellows. I have seen miracles happen in spine surgery where people are completely paralyzed and you do surgery and they walk out of the hospital or rehab. I haven't seen many miracles happen if you don't operate right away. If you let someone stay paralyzed for two, three, four days and then you decide. And, and some people do that. That's a philosophy. Let the spinal cord swell and go down before we do surgery. At Jefferson, we move right away. So we took her right to the operating room. We operate on her. We put her spine back together, took the pressure off the spinal cord. And over time, she got full function back, which was a miracle. Her and I became good friends. And, and the way we do that, just so you know, if you want me to describe it, you always get a CAT scan, MRI, you see exactly what's wrong. So you have all these vertebrae on top of each other and one vertebrae just, it's dislocated. So it's like, boom, unfortunately through this tube is your spinal cord. So when it dislocates, it scissors the spinal cord. So we make an incision. And we literally grab the spine, the spine above and grab the spine and we distract, translate, and put it over, make sure the spinal cord is no pressure. And then we take a hardware set, drills and screws, and we put screws and bone and rods and we put it together. Then we turn the patient over and we make an incision in the front of the neck. We dissect down through the various levels. We get to the spine in the front. We remove the disc. We look at the spinal cord from the front to get any herniated disc. We did all that. 
and she got the ability to walk again. And she was so happy. She dedicated her life to helping others because of this good Samaritan. So she went on book tours and all sorts of things. And she couldn't be happier. And her and I lectured together. We went down into Memphis and stuff like that. So when people say, listen, tell us about the benefits of medicine. I call this woman up and she'll travel with me. Another great, interesting story was Adam Telefero. Paris, you ever hear the name Adam Telefero? So he's a congressman or or was a congressman. He may still be a congressman in New Jersey. And this is a public case. So this is, I can talk about this. So Adam played for Penn State. And if you Google a Penn State football player who became a quadriplegic, they were playing away and he put his head down, I think, to tackle somebody. I think it was a defenseman defensive back, and he became quadriplegic. Operated on right away, no function back, paralyzed. And I would round in the morning, and he'd be there with his grandmother. Grandmother, 60, 70, 80, I don't know how old she was. Very nice lady. And we can examine someone, and we can sort of prognosticate, what is the chance of that person getting function back? So if you have no motor strength, you can't move at all, but you have sensation, that's called an Asia B. Asia A, bad. Asia B, there's a chance, but there's a low chance. But we found if they could feel pinprick, there's a 76% chance that that person may regain the ability to, to ambulate. Better if you're younger than older. If it's they can't feel pinprick, but they can feel deep pressure, it goes down to 26%. So I'd come in, and then, and then there's something called neurologic tiring. In the morning, you examine someone, they can feel it. Two o'clock in the afternoon, they can't feel it. They get neurologic tiring. They see that all the time, it's fine. So I, we round at 4.30 in the morning, he's feeling it. And, and grandma says to me, I say, Adam, can you feel the pinprick? He says, yes, close your eyes. You try to trick the patient so he doesn't see you doing it. He says, yeah, I can feel it. And then grandma says to me, Doc, do you think my, my grandson's going to walk again? And I said, yes, I do. He can feel pinprick. And she goes, holy be to God. And she falls back. We have to grab her. She almost faints. We hold her. We, we bring her down. And she's crying. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I'm just a spine surgeon. After me, the rehab doctors come in at you know 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. And the exam's a little different for them because it's later on. So I remember I was doing something bad. I go to my house. I'm on my deck. I lit up a cigar. It's a Friday afternoon. You know, doing bad things that doctors shouldn't do. And the phone rings. And it's the rehab physician. And he says, Alex, I, you know, I got to tell you, I think he did a disservice by telling grandma that Adam's going to walk again. I came by and I told her she was, he wasn't going to walk again. And I go, and I'm smoking my, I'm like choking on my cigar for two reasons. A, it's not good for me, but I go, you didn't tell grandma that Adam wasn't going to walk again. He goes, I did. I go, wow, I probably wouldn't have done that if I were you. That I don't think was a good idea because I got pinprick and you have to give hope. As a spinal cord injury surgeon, you have to give hope. Fast forward six weeks later, he's walking. Everyone's happy. So they write a book about this. There's a book and there's a chapter that goes over exactly what happens. They talk about me coming in, grandma fainting, the rehab doctor, you know, killing the, the moment, 
and then the conversation with me. So it's a funny moment that happened. So that those are the two good things in my job that I'll never forget. And I became good friends with Adam over time. You know, you be, as I said, you become family with these horrible cases. And Adam and I have worked on fundraisers for spinal cord injury at the different spinal cord injury centers, McGee and uh, and Thomas in Philadelphia. So it's been good. I want to circle back a little bit. Um, so you were talking about your early life and you said you wanted to be a doctor from pretty early on. I mean, how early on and, and how did you, what gave you that feeling you wanted to be a doctor? Here's the sad thing. I remember exactly what age. I remember standing on my front porch watching Dr. Ferraro drive by the house and saying to my mother, I want to be a doctor because I love the doctor so much. I thought he was so professional. I mean, how can an eight-year-old know how professional? He was so professional. White jacket came in, handsome guy, tall. Everyone revered him. He was giving medicine, giving shots. Everyone was, he was curing the sick. I said, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a doctor, eight years old. And then as I got older and I started to get into the sciences and I started to dissect, um, and I started to dissect animals in science class in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, I said, you know, I think I want to be a surgeon. So I, 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 it wasn't like I had to figure out what I wanted to do. I, I knew what I wanted to do, and I went into that, and I loved it. So it was eight years old. How did you pick ortho? Okay, so ortho doesn't happen until you get to Georgetown Medical School. And I didn't know what I wanted to be, but the orthopods are the jocks. I mean, I, I mean, we might as well tell the audience. I mean, neurosurgeons are geniuses. Uh, cardiac surgeons are cool. Orthopedic surgeons are jocks. They're big, strong, uh, like sports, go to games, team doctors. And I just, we just started, I just started to hang out with the orthopods when I was in medical school. And then I said, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I'm going to tell you how I chose Thomas Jefferson. So, so, yep. So what happens is you, everyone knows about the match day, which occurs on March, whatever, March something, the match day. Thomas Jefferson was the only program in the country in, 1986 that had an early decision. Don't ask me why. Rothman was a boss, wanted to be different. I guess if you call people in October, you're in, you get who you, you get at the top of the, the field. So I applied to 37 programs and I go and I'm sitting with a bunch, like 90 applicants in the cafeteria at Jefferson. They set up tables and they made an announcement. One hour after the interviews are done, everyone give a number where you can be reached, and we're going to choose the six people to be in the orthopedic class. This is in October of my senior year at Georgetown. So I go, okay. Now, listen, my dad went to the Warden School of Business in Penn, and I told my dad, I go, Dad, uh, I'm interviewing a Thomas Jefferson, and a typical Penn grad goes, I never heard of it. And I remember saying to my dad, I go, what? He goes, but that's typical Penn grad. So I go, Thomas Jefferson, it's across the river. It's it, it's not a university. It's like a, it's, it's a medical university. It's not like an un undergrad. He's like, oh, I never heard of it. Okay, have fun. So I go to interview. I stay at another student's house. The phone rings. Dr. Kotler says, hey, you're in. I'm like, yes, I'm in. Phenomenal. I'm in. And you know the anxiety of match day? There's no anxiety anymore. So I then withdraw from every applicant. I don't know anything about Thomas Jefferson University. I mean, when I say zero, I don't even think I knew it existed besides the fact that an early match day. 
this young uh, Rothman had just become the chairman from, from Dr. Gartman. So it was his first year. So the rest of the year, I said, well, listen, I don't have to study anymore. You know, I'm in. You know, it's, you, you become a bad student your second year of, of, of your senior year. And I joined the Peace Corps and I went to Cambodia and worked with the refugees from the Khmer Rouge Vietnamese war issue. And I went to, and we stayed in uh, Thailand and we worked in uh, Aranya Patet on the border of Cambodia. So that's what I did my second half of the year. And that's why I chose orthopedics. And that's how I chose Jefferson, all by chance. And isn't it funny? I'm here still. Earlier, you were talking about the blessing of having time with your family during this COVID-19 pandemic. And pull back on this. You are an orthopedic surgeon and spine surgeon, and you are also the chair of a multi-hospital academic department, and you're the president of a multi-state orthopedic group. So how do you, and you, it sounds like you do a full load. Am I right about that? Of do, yeah, full load. All right. How do you, how do you fit that together? And how do you fit together time for your family without COVID-19? Everything happens because you've got a great team. So as Rothman used to tell me, always hire people that are better, smarter, and more efficient than you do. And that's what he did. He always said, I'm going to hire this guy, this guy, this guy, because he's better than I am. I have a phenomenal team. So from an administrative perspective, I have Mike West, who's a, a CEO. He has a C-suite, which is Ed Toforo in operations, Sean Perini in finance, Michael Sheeran in development, and Mike Seleski in legal. And we work together every day. We have a meeting every morning at 5 a.m. So that sounds weird to most people on this podcast. So I go to bed early, 9 9.30, hang out with my wife, probably fall asleep at 10. I'm up at 3.30 every morning. It's just, I just wait. I just don't sleep that much. It's not that I, my alarm goes off. I work out in my gym every morning at 4 a.m. And I have a cycle desk as a nerd. And I do my email on my cycle desk every morning at 4, take a shower. We have a five o'clock in the morning meeting. And the guys, are, and Michael West is in the office already at 5 a.m. So we do that. And we begin surgeries at 6.15 in the morning in the Jefferson system. They were nice enough to allow me as chairman to start my cases early. Like most people start at 7.38. They were nice enough to allow me to start at 6.15. So I can get my four surgeries done by between 10 and 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And then we then we just do – it's, it's uh, running the business for six hours. And I used to, before the COVID crisis, I would always go home for dinner. And I would have dinner with the family. And then at seven o'clock, I always have a meeting five nights a week, except Friday, sometimes not Friday. And that meeting would be at a local restaurant for 45 minutes to an hour. That's for everyone outside the university that wants to meet me. You can, when you have a multi-state business, you have people flying in from all over the place. So there's five restaurants on the main line that would, I would rotate. And whoever had fruit for dessert, I would go to. Because, you know, you can't eat carbs. you got to stay skinny. You know how it is. So I'm getting home at 6 o'clock every night having dinner, which I didn't do in the first half of my career. I was never home for dinner. And then I don't have to operate around on the weekends. I never had that in the first half. So now the weekends are off. So, you know, you do, I do maybe four hours of business on Saturday and Sunday, but I wake up early. So when, you, when you're having a business meeting on a Saturday at 5 o'clock in the morning, you're done by 9, you're with the family for the whole weekend.
the only controversial thing maybe, you know, here that I'm going to say is that there's orthopedic spine surgeons and neurosurgical spine surgeons. And maybe there are some areas where the choice is pretty clear. Um, but let's just say you've got something that's right down the middle. You've got a lumbar stenosis or a central disc prolapse that is messing your life up. How do you pick whether you go to an orthopedic spine surgeon or a neurosurgical spine surgeon? So this is what I tell to everybody. I tell them what I said, you ready for this line? I would never go to an orthopedic surgeon to do spine surgery. And I would never go to a neurosurgeon to do spine surgery. I would only go to a fellowship trained spine surgeon. That's the line. Don't go to an orthopedic surgeon because the guy's doing hip replacements, fixing a risk. Risk, don't do that. Don't go to a neurosurgeon who's doing brain surgery, doing vascular surgery, doing deep brain stimulation. Waste of time. Go to someone who has decided after his training that he wanted to specialize in spine and he's done an advanced spine fellowship studying only the spine. And that's who you choose. Now, Jack Jallo, you interviewed yesterday. I love to work with Jack and I, I work with his other partners because they deal with the spinal cord. So I had a patient that had a spinal fluid leak and the patient didn't have any dura. There's, dura is a membrane that goes around the nerves. You need a neurosurgeon for that. You need a neurosurgeon to open up the spinal cord, to do an internal patching. That's what a neurosurgeon's great at. So a neurosurgeon's phenomenal at that. So when it comes to working within the spinal cord, you want a neurosurgeon. You don't want an orthopedic surgeon. If, a if an orthopedic surgeon says, I'm going to open up that spinal cord and I'm going to drain that syrinx, thank you very much, and you're out the door. That's when a neurosurgeon really shines. If a neurosurgeon spends time doing a fellowship where he's doing spinal deformity and he feels comfortable, then he's competent to do spinal deformity. Orthopods tend to do it, you know, as a first-year resident, second-year resident, third-year resident, we're doing it. But it's called the practice of medicine. Once you learn how to do it and you practice it, there should be no difference between a talent of a neurosurgeon and an orthopedic surgeon, except for intradural work, intradural tumor, neurosurgeon, syrinx, neurosurgeon, curie malformation, decompressing the suboccipital region, neurosurgeon. Outside of that, they're both equal. I hope Jack said the same thing. I don't know if he did or not, but. He said early on, and I, I, I'm going to let you listen to his interview because I don't want to misquote him. Um, you know, I'm on night shift at the moment. Uh, I don't want to make a mistake. Uh, one direct quote I'm going to share is he said, you are a great man. Who, me? Yeah. No, that's nice of him. I, I love him. Uh, he said that you have operated together and he loves operating with you. Um, and he said that he felt that when someone had experience, it didn't matter anymore which background they came from. I agree. Uh, and he said that, um, and I don't want to make, I want to, you know, hope I don't get this too wrong, but he said early in their career, if it was mostly about membranes, and cord, he would go neurosurgery. And if it was mostly about bones and deformity, that's where someone who came from an orthopedic background might be stronger. But he said, after time, it didn't matter anymore. I would, I would still say, if I had a friend who needed the spinal cord open to remove an intradural tumor, I'm going with a neurosurgeon. And, and if you've got someone with a big deformity, do you, you know, 
I, I usually go to an orthopedic surgeon for that because we're, we're so good at it. I mean, I know all my buddies are so good at deformity surgery. I do it. We all do it. We're so good. But I know some really good neurosurgeons who are great at it also, like, good, like really good friends of mine who are just as good as I am or anyone else. So he's right. If you're experienced doing deformity, I mean, at five, we've been in, I'm in practice 27 years doing spine surgery. So you've seen it all. You've done everything. And again, as Jack probably told you, it's all about safety. It's all about not having a complication. By the way, yet yesterday I was speaking with Jack Jallo. He's also doing one of these. I love him. I'm a big fan of Jack. You know, both doctors trained in orthopedic surgery and doctors trained in neurosurgery can perform spine surgery. And there is probably everywhere a degree of friendly rivalry at the minimum. But in some places, it's not friendly. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And Thomas Jefferson, it's so friendly. I have been at so many different hospitals in my training, and the vast majority is a separation. So we do things together. We lecture together. We do research together. I call the neurosurgeons all the time. We look at life differently. The, the neurosurgeon is really good at understanding the brain and the spinal cord. So if I have a syrinx, which is a fluid-filled cavity within a spinal cord, an orthopedic surgeon doesn't want to jump into that. I'm into scoliosis, deformity fractures, disc herniations. But when you deal with the spinal cord itself, I want to respect it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to move it. And you get a neurosurgeon and, and that's their life. They live in that area. So they may not be as comfortable with deformities and that's changing now. And they're, they're comfortable. They may not be as comfortable as you know putting screws and rods in, but that's changing also. So we get together on difficult cases and it makes Thomas Jefferson one of the best places if you need to have spinal care because you have you have a whole bunch of spine surgeons that come together every day. We round every day together. We sit in a room. We every case that comes in, we talk about we talk about the complications. We talk about the treatment, and then we study them. And we, as you saw from our resumes, we write papers and we write books on the management of spinal care. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. We talk about what Rothman is doing during the current COVID-19 pandemic, now that elective surgeries are being scheduled after being on pause. I've, I've, I've operated nonstop because I do urgent and emergent spine cases. I haven't done less than, I've done my normal schedule because now everyone comes to me with urgent and emergent cases. Before I had, I, and it's a funny thing, I canceled my elective cases for March, April, and May, replaced them with disaster cases, and now the Elective cases don't want to go back on the schedule. So when the governor said it's now okay to operate, we called these patients up and they're like, yeah, I'm not coming back. I go, well, well you, you signed up for spine surgery. I mean, you were miserable. Yeah, but yeah, I'm just not going to walk that much. Or I'm going to use a wheelchair. Or I'm going to use a walker until you have a vaccine. So it's interesting, the mind frame. And I think surgery will be different going forward until we have something to protect. Until they know that you have a vaccine or a treatment, if your mom has hip disease and is limping, you're going to say, hey, mom, I'm an ER doc. Why don't you just take it easy? I mean, don't walk as much. G give, it a, give it six months to a year. Let's figure this out. So that's my prediction. I hope I'm wrong for the Rothman Institute's sake. But I, I think that I'm seeing it now because once we opened up the doors for the next two weeks, Jefferson called me and they said, listen, you didn't fill up all your spots for your joint guys. And I go, the patients are not too, too excited about coming back because they're watching the 6.30 news every night. They're watching CNN every night and they're getting freaked out. 
So what can you do, maybe in a very, in a, in a, in a very public way, to get a message to people that you are not going to get COVID when you come into the hospital? Yeah, if you Google my name, every week I give sort of the state of affairs address to society and also to the Rothman place. And I talk about all the things we're doing, all the precautions. Like if you go into the Rothman Orthopedic Specialty Hospital, and if you walk through the door, it's like a gauntlet. Hi, let me take your forehead temperature. Hi, let me take your pulse ox. Hi, let me take your your your, um, your uh, pulse rate. Hi, let me take a history. They do it to me every time I walk in. And I say, by the way, you're the only place doing this. You go to you know, one of the university hospitals and uh, they're not testing the staff unless te- staff requests to be tested. So we test all the patients we operate on 48 hours before the patient. So every patient gets tested. Potentially even come out with some very kind of short turnaround study to show that people are less likely to come out with a nosocomial illness uh, now than six months ago with this much generalized precautions in place. Absolutely. So we're going to write a paper. I'm, I'm with my spine fellow who's on the right of me, Sri Devi. And I want to really study those patients that decided to sign up for spine surgery with an urgent emergent case without ever meeting the spine surgeon face-to-face. Everything's been on telemedicine. So since the end of March, everything's telemedicine. So I'm speaking to you. You're telling me that you have developed a foot drop. And I say, well, do you have an MRI? You upload the MRI. I look at the MRI. I see a large disc herniation. I said, well, listen, um, you're in agony. You can't walk. And now your foot doesn't work. I think I need to remove that. Let me tell you the complications of surgery. I don't even examine the patient. So we've come up with a validated way of doing examination. So we have this kit with SIM Murphy filaments. We have bands and we have stuff like that. We ask a family member to do maneuvers over telemedicine. And we say, you're ready for surgery now. Let's go tomorrow, the next day. So we do that. So uh, we get these people ready for surgery, which is interesting. This could be this could be a model for you know long after we have these concerns. I mean, you know, I know that your practice, operations management, is a huge part of it, right? You guys are all about efficiency, and wow, you know, I mean, no one likes trucking over to get to their appointment, you know, or waiting or anything like that. And you guys are developing stuff that is transferable. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I've really studied the uh, telemedicine business model in the last three months. And we've really perfected it using iPads, handheld, you know, smartphones to do telemedicine, uploading images, looking at HIPAA compliant images, t- doing telemedicine between cases, doing telemedicine during travel. If you're in the passenger seat of a car, I mean, really we've changed the business model to access patients, which has been great. So are you working with Judd Hollander on some of that? interesting you say that. So I've been in touch with Judd Hollander in multiple different touch points. We went off on our own at the Rothman Institute. So we invested in a type of company that didn't do well. So we moved out from that. Now we're using ECW, which is our EHR, and they have a telemedicine component, which is phenomenal. So they have it, it has an encrypted number. So on your iPhone, you download an app and you can actually call a patient on your iPhone with an encrypted number. So you don't give out your cell phone number. You could sit down, you can pull up on the PAC system, the imaging studies. You could look at the imaging studies. You could look at the patient's face and you can open up another, on an iPhone, another window that shows the patient data. So what happens, the workflow is this, the nurse practitioner or extended care provider will call the patient, get all the information that's important. Then I dial in, I tell the patient, I, I put him in the computer at 7 a.m. so I can call him anytime. We tell the patient, we'll give you a text five minutes before. So the second I'm ready, I send a text out, are you ready? I get it back, a yes. 
And then I call them up and we face to face go over the imaging studies. And then once I'm done, we have a med tech dictation service that's a voice activated system. We just dictate exactly what we said. So the note is transcribed that day and we're ready to go. Here's the two interesting insurance company headaches that we have. One, some insurance companies have come back and say, you know, I, I know this is a, an emergency and I know the patient has a neurologic deficit, but you didn't do an exam in person. And that's our policy. And, and, then, and this is a physician. This is not an administrator. And I respond, you know, well, have you paid attention to the governor? We're not allowed to have inpatient visits. And uh, the president has also called for a lockdown. So this is a telemedicine where a patient has shown me that they're not moving their foot anymore. They can't dorsiflex their ankle. And I've looked at the MRI and there's a massive disc herniation crushing the L45 nerve root. Yeah, but I'm sorry. That's our policy. So then you have to elevate it. The second thing is in that situation, some insurance companies have a policy. Yeah, but we need a second opinion. I go, well, if you can get me another spine surgeon now who's doing telemedicine. And remember, a lot of people didn't start telemedicine until midway through April. We were doing this at the end of March. So it's an interesting phenomenon we have. Do they want a second opinion from outside of Rothman? Yeah, the insurance companies. So it's these are the headaches. So I say, listen, you're not, you're not being reasonable. We have a, a national emergency. Second opinion, you know, physical. I mean, we can't do a physical exam. You know, we do it at the point of touch. So when you see the patient in the morning of surgery, it's a funny thing. We, we have to wear masks into the hospital. So I walk and I go, this is what your surgeon looks like. How are you? I don't even shake hands. My fellow, I don't want to touch the patient before surgery because I want to stay sterile. So the fellow in front of me will do the neurologic exam. We'll write down all the things. We'll dictate a note then. So now I've documented the neurologic exam. And then we go over the complications of COVID exposure again with the patient. And this, these are your risks. And then we move to surgery. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. The more exciting part of my life is my four kids and my wife and uh, being a father and being challenged. And, and, and that's, my, that's my part of my life and, and coaching my kids in sports and stuff like that. So, um, and I would love it. And I, it's fantastic. And I, I think at times I'm good at it, then I fail. And I think I'm good at it, then I fail. So that's uh, my excitement. The problem with being what you and I are involved as physicians is that, I mean, you had just told me all the hours you work. It's just that we take parts of our life and we put it on hold that we hope we restart in the future. I love art. I love drawing. I love painting. At one time, I thought I was good at it. I haven't drawn for 10, 15 years. I have a place in my house that I said, That's, this is going to be my studio when I retire. And this COVID crisis for the first time, allowed me to stop and start doing the things I, I, I didn't have time for. Long walks in the woods. I started to draw a little bit. I realized, wow, I need practice. I, um, I started to cook. I started to grill. I do the shopping. I realized how difficult my wife has it. I realized what it's like to be a parent that's home at 11 a.m., 12 p.m., 1 p.m., 2 p.m., it's, and it's crazy to be home with the kids all day long and to deal with the kids all day long instead of just coming home for dinner, if we're lucky, and enjoying the kids. I now became a, a parent for the first time during the crisis. So 
So people look at this crisis and they say, this is the worst thing in the world. And it is absolutely. If you have a loved one who's sick, who passes away, there's nothing worse. Uh, but there's other things that we can gain from this experience. Time to be with our family, time to make that relationship much better, time not to get on an airplane. As a professor, and you know this, I would have to fly someplace almost every week. I'd work until Thursday. You fly Thursday night for Friday meeting or you fly Friday night for Saturday meeting. And that wears at your body. It wears at your soul and it wears at your relationships. And I haven't done it since the beginning of March. And when the Governor Wolf came out yesterday and said, we have a lockdown until June 8th, of course, I rolled my eyes in respect. I'm like, we got to do what he says. And then I said, I looked at the bright side. Another month of cooking, another month of yelling at my kids, another month of, you know, hanging out. I mean, the, the great thing about this is I'm still doing four surgeries a day, three days a week because I do the urgent emergent cases. And, but I'm getting done at one o'clock in the afternoon and I'm going home and I'm swimming every day with my kids. I taught my four-year-old and my five-year-old how to swim well. And I'm always home at like one third. And today's a late day for me because I have this thing with you today. So today's a late day. I'm in my office, but it's uh, I'm home and I'm I'm doing things I never did before, which is phenomenal. Doctor Alex Vaccaro, thank you so much for appearing on Medical Memories. It was a pleasure, Paris. This is Medical Murmurs. If you're a medical student or just interested in medical careers, there is another episode with the same guest where we focus on career questions such as how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. It's called Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. Check it out.